listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name's Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, we are discussing how the war in Ukraine has eclipsed all others going on right now, with the question, what about the other conflicts raging around the world? Keith, why has the war in Ukraine dominated the news so much? Yes, this is an article that caught my eye. It's written by John Pfeffer, who writes for Foreign Policy in Focus in the United States. And obviously, he's responding to the complaints that he and I have received (laughs) over the last few months that we seem to be obsessed with Ukraine, and yet there are so many other conflicts going on around the world. And he's listed, I think, a good list of reasons which justifies why we're giving so much attention to Ukraine. I put at the top of my list the risk that it could become a nuclear issue in a way that, say, the tragedy in Ethiopia at the moment is not going to become a nuclear issue the nuclear weapon countries don't feel strongly enough to start threatening. Whereas in the case of Ukraine, we've got a Russian leader who is threatening to use nuclear weapons. You've got President Biden who's talking about nuclear Armageddon. So for me, that's the top of the list as to why I pay attention to Ukraine. But he's provided other reasons. The standard one, of course, is one of race. Namely, these are white people who are busy fighting one another. And You know, we thought that that era of war in Europe had come to an end last century, Mm. and yet here we are talking about a major war in Europe. It's worth bearing in mind that the Russians have now, we think, lost as many troops in the last six months in Ukraine as they did in a decade of fighting in Afghanistan. Mm. So it really is a major conflict, and even if the fighting stopped today, it would take years for Ukraine to recover, let alone, of course, the recovery of, of Russia. Uh, which has been very hard hit with economic sanctions, etc. So there is this argument that it's white people fighting white people, and this is the argument that you get, say, from Indians, who are pretty neutral on this issue, even though they're claiming to be an ally of Australia vis-a-vis China. When it comes to Russia, the Indians seem to think, well, we'll just do our own deals. This is a white person struggle. So that is that is certainly the standard complaint that you get, that you're focusing so much on Ukraine, what about all these other non-white conflicts that are underway? The other major reason that he gives is the whole impact of what is called geopolitics. So the founders of geopolitics said that the world revolves around the European heartland. So this is a method of thinking that goes back over a century. So if you can imagine a, a map laid out on our table here, the middle of the map consists of what's called the world island or the earth island. So the earth island begins in Spain and Portugal and then runs the entire length of much of that map Mm. until you get to China Mm -hmm. and Siberia. And so people like Mackinder, Mann, Spikeman, who are the, the, if you like, the, the creators of geopolitics over a century ago said, look, this is where the action is. It's going to be in Europe. And, of course, they were justified with two world wars coming along and then we've had the Vietnam War, we've had Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. And so their argument is, look, this is where the action is. And, of course, Ukraine is right there, Mm. is part of that Earth island. That's right. So from a a geopolitics point of view, you would say, yes, um, it is appropriate that you focus on Ukraine 
because it is a part of the Earth Island, whereas some of the disputes, say, in the South Pacific or even in Latin America or Africa, these are on the periphery. If you take a traditional strategic point of view, you'd say that Africa, Latin America, Australasia, our own region, Mm. you know, we're small beer compared with the Earth Island. So what goes on in the Earth Island determines the world. Do you think that's changed at all? I mean, like you said, this kind of way of thinking came from quite a while back. Has that changed at all with the emergence of the US? Well, I think it has, yes. I think that, although, of course, if you look at the US, his problems, most of them are on the Earth Island. True, true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that, yes, it it certainly has changed Mm. with the rise to global dominance of the United States. But as I say, most of America's concerns seem to be back on that Earth Island. And, of course, you get a Donald Trump coming along who says, look, we've just got to get away from all these foreign wars. Now, Mm. he probably knows nothing about Mackinder, Mann and Spikeman, you know, the grand theorists, et cetera, of geopolitics. He just had a gut instinct which said that Americans are sick and tired of fighting foreign wars. So that's why he talked about America first, withdrawing from international alliances, because it's a message that resonates with a lot of Americans. It goes back to the first president, George Washington, who said, don't get involved in Europe's affairs. They're all mad over there. (laughs) (laughs) So President Washington was warning about the Earth Island before we even coined the phrase Earth Island. Yeah, gotcha. And Donald Trump is tapping into that very old American political tradition. Mm. I guess as well, a point that I read in the article was talking about how Russia's invasion is such a blatant breach of international law of a democratic country. Do you think that garners more sympathy from people as well and they want to know what's going on? I think it does garner sympathy. I think that people are genuinely outraged. But don't forget, we've lived through that ourselves Mm. with the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which many of us still regard as an illegal act. Mm. And so Bush, Blair and Howard are unindicted war criminals. So it isn't just that sense of moral outrage that you've got this clear violation of international law. I guess also what is, and it's still with this international law focus, it continues through the way in which the Russians are fighting the war. At least the Americans could say, well, you know, we tried to avoid civilian casualties, although they clearly clocked them up, mm-hmm. as WikiLeaks have shown. But the Russians are doing it deliberately with the way in which they're targeting the cities. They're not winning on the battlefield. The Ukrainians are too good for them. The Russian soldiers are no good. So what they're now doing is just targeting civilians, which is contrary to international law. So the original invasion was illegal. And then secondly, you've got the way in which it's actually being conducted and the deliberate killing, et cetera, of civilians. That is also a war crime. Do you think the global interest in the war in Ukraine will last if it stretches on two, three, four years into the future? Do you think it'll start to wane? Oh, I think it will. In the media terms, we have this idea of issue salience. And the issue salience idea is that an idea is really top of mind, but only for a certain amount of time. And then other ideas will come along to challenge it. And I think this is what President Zelensky is very much afraid of, that eventually Western countries will say, look, we've done our best, we've done our best to help you, but we just can't keep on doing it. You know, look at the Britain at the moment, which is a major supporter of Ukraine, but it's now plagued with economic problems. Mm. And so the British can say, well, look, we've done our best to help you, we've supplied you with a lot of equipment, but we're going to have to scale it down. In the United States, the war is unpopular in some areas. I think that Putin misjudged the mood in the United States when he launched the invasion. He, he saw the Americans 
bitterly divided over their toxic culture wars, feuding with each other, etc. And he thought, well, I'll be able to get away with this invasion as I did with the invasion of Crimea mm. eight years ago. He certainly got that wrong. And you had people who've come quite unexpectedly in behind Biden, including some conservatives. So you've got those in the Republican Party supporting the Democrat president. But you've got others on the left and the right who are saying this is not our war. So the left, the peace movement, a lot of peace movement people are opposed to the American action. Some of them, and you get this on the right as well, saying, well, look, NATO led Putin into an ambush, which I think has probably got some truth to it, but it was Putin's decision to go into that ambush. So there was a looming ambush, but he walked into it nonetheless. And you also get on the right people who are saying, look, Putin represents our values. You know, that we've got here toxic culture politics, we've got all these trendy lefties, whereas Putin stands for family values, etc. We really ought to be sympathetic to him rather than the, the politically correct lot in Washington. In the United States, it wouldn't take much, I think, for the Americans to lose interest in this. And if Trump is re-elected in two years' time, or indeed if Biden loses control of Congress in a few weeks' time, then I think you might see a change in terms of the Americans and their commitment to it. Now, what President Zelensky is doing, of course, is seeking to get others to put skin in the game, which is why, for example, he's lobbying to have Australian forces train Ukrainian forces. They won't be going to Ukraine and we won't be getting Ukrainian troops here. They'll be training them presumably in Poland or Germany. Not that we can make much difference to the effort, but Zelensky is then able to say to other potential and actual allies, look, even Australians on the other side of the globe, 12,000 miles away from the action, even they're supporting us and then shaming the French and the Germans for not doing (laughs) enough. So it, it is interesting how Zelensky is trying to broaden that base of support not just for the military significance, I'm sure Australian training will be of help, but the broader issue, the psychological and the morale issue of saying even the Australians, the other side of the world, are coming in to help us. And that helps to maintain this international interest in what's going on with Ukraine. You're right, there is a risk, I think, that the media will just move on, particularly as we head into winter. It's going to be very difficult to fight Mm. when the ground gets very wet and soggy in the late autumn. It'll freeze in the winter, which is good news. The tanks can move, but they'll be very cold for the soldiers on the ground. (laughs) Um, So there will be these fluctuations in the nature of the fighting as well. And there'll be no new angles coming out from the point of view of the media. It's just another one of these boring conflicts in Europe. Yeah, well, I've got to say I work as a journalist and I've noticed that recently it's ramped back up when Russia launched all those attacks but in general, it had all kind of waned off mm. in between, you know, for the last couple of months. So I can definitely see that happening. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Thanks for your company this week. As we ask the question, with the war in Ukraine taking up most of the headlines these days, what other conflicts aren't we hearing about? And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you next, Keith. What are some of the other wars being fought right now? Yes, John Pfeffer in his article on So What About Those Other Wars, very good because he looks at the number of other wars that are going on. Now, we've actually seen a reduction in international warfare, right? So the most dangerous time to have lived between 1900 and today was between 1900 and 1950, which is the outbreak of the Korean War. Since that time, the number of international wars has actually declined. 
and the number of people killed overall in war has also declined. Now, people won't believe me because whenever I'm on TV, I'm talking about a war. <laughs> <laughs> but the numbers are going down. That's, that's the good news that mm. some commentators are talking about. So reduction of international wars, and I guess that's another reason why we make a fuss of Ukraine because it clearly is one country invading another. But what you've got is incredibly complicated internal conflicts. He looks at the whole issue of Ethiopia and it goes on for an entire page. So difficult to work out uh, yeah. who, who is fighting whom. Oh, yes. And then you've also got what are called the frozen wars, mm. such as between the two Koreas, between China and Taiwan, what's going on inside Georgia at the moment. These could warm up, but they're also called frozen wars. So, yes, we do have a lot of other people being affected. For example, the Syrian civil war, where you've had 7 million Syrians flee the country. As you know, one million walked, literally walked into Germany mm. a few years back. You've got six million Venezuelans who've fled their own country because of the decay in that country. You've got six million Afghans who have fled their home, some of whom, by the way, are in, here in Australia. I've been involved with the project to resettle female Afghan judges and their families. So you're getting these mass movements of peoples from these conflicts. But as Pfeffer says, in the case now of Afghanistan, it's really, we're back to what Afghanistan used to be like before the Soviets invaded in 1979. You've got this religious conflict, you've got all the tribal conflicts and all the rest of it, mm. but it's back to business as usual. It's not dealing with an outside invader, you're just dealing with the internal conflicts, which makes for something being incredibly complicated for people to be able to follow. Mm. You mentioned the so-called frozen wars between the two Koreas, but also China and Taiwan. Now, of course, as we've discussed on this um, podcast series before, that could involve the West. Australia could be dragged into that through mm. alliances and things like that. Do you think in that situation, then it probably overtakes Ukraine in Australia as a headline generator? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And in a sense, from our point of view, Taiwan is more important than Ukraine mm. because Taiwan is a major producer of computer chips, which is one of the arguments that people advance why the Chinese would not be stupid enough to invade Taiwan because they don't want to disrupt those computer chips in their flow to the international market, some of whom uh, go to China, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so the argument is that President Xi would not want to invade Taiwan for fear of disrupting the supply of computer chips because, you know, we're in a studio here, which is, I'm sure, containing lots oh, of yes. Taiwanese computer chips. But you're right, if a war were to take place, by the looks of it, because we're allied to the United States, and President Biden is very firm in his support for Taiwan, and so, yes, we would be dragged into that and then we'll forget about Ukraine because Taiwan will be the big issue. Yeah, absolutely. We also haven't heard much about Islamic State here in Australia for a while. Again, it was a huge headline generator, you know, even just a couple of years back, probably pre-pandemic, I'd say. Are there any developments there? Yes, well, it still exists. It's mm. still carrying out raids. Um, it's active in Afghanistan, yeah. which is part of that internal struggle between Sunni and Shia. It doesn't get on well with the Taliban. So you have tensions between these two terrorist groups that are busy fighting each yes. other. And the Islamic State don't approve of the education of young girls, so they often blow up schools. Mm. But you're right, they don't get much publicity because there are not too many foreigners being killed. You kill a foreigner, you get foreign media coverage. If you just kill the locals, then there's very little media coverage. 
it might perhaps just make a very short story mm. on TV or radio. But it's not a major issue because, after all, it's Afghanis who are dying. And that circles back to your initial point, was that race is part of what has made Ukraine a headline generator. Absolutely, because we really are not that interested in people living in the developing world or third mm. world, whatever you want to call it. You're right, there is this element of race. We can't get a can't get away with that because, remember, working in the media, we are supplying stuff that our audiences want to hear. And if our audiences are not interested in hearing about the intricacies of, say, Ethiopia... <laughs> I don't even understand it. How can I report on it? <laughs> so how... Exactly. If we have no incentive, you and I, to talk about Ethiopia from the point of view of our listeners, then we're not going to try to get our heads around it. We're not going to do a, a special program on Ethiopia for this series. Similarly, with all the other current comments, I'm on radio, commercial radio, and the ABC on average once a day. Mm. I don't get questions on Ethiopia. No. It's Ukraine at the moment or the, the current crisis in the United Kingdom. And so, yes, it is, it is that problem of providing material which our own listeners or viewers want to have. And if they're not interested in Ethiopia, it's pointless on doing a program on Ethiopia. So there is, a, there is an element of race there because most of our listeners will identify with what's called the weird world, Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. Mm. So that's our problem. Yeah, absolutely. And to wrap us up, Keith, would you consider our interest in the war in Ukraine justified or is it an example of Western ignorance to other tragedies happening around the globe? Good question. Um, I think it is justified, particularly if it spins out into a nuclear conflict. When you look at the global ramifications that we've got, disruptions to the international economy, disruptions to the international food supply. You know, the, the world's largest grain exporter has now invaded the world's fourth largest grain exporter. There will be ripple effects felt in many countries. Egypt, Lebanon, Syria are particularly dependent on grain coming from Ukraine and Russia. So there will be knock-on effects around the world. So I think we are justified in giving a lot of coverage to Ukraine because the world is interconnected and this is certainly brought out by the Ukraine invasion. Tragically, in Ethiopia, by contrast, we're not that badly affected. That's the tragedy of it. Ukraine is top of mind because it's so plugged into the global economy. The international sanctions against Russia will have their own global implications. So, yes, we are justified in giving a lot of attention to Ukraine. Thank you so much for your company this week, Keith. Thank you. Have a great one. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.